Welcome to Loving the Christ Life. Welcome. Glad to have you with us. I'm Brad Wilson, and we're excited because today we are starting a new series from Warren Litzman. It's titled, Renewing the Mind. I think you're really going to love it. This is going to be part one of a terrific series, so let's get right into it right now. Here's Warren. I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to Romans 12. Just hold your Bible open right at Romans 12. During this time of teaching, I'm going to be talking to you on the subject of the renewal of the mind. We'll get to the text in just a little while. But that's our general subject. It is always a fresh thing to me what I see by the Spirit, and I want to bring it to others. When I get a fresh thing, I like to talk to other people about it. Fact is, however, there's not anything new in the world, and certainly may not be anything new for me because I talk so much about so many different things that uh, I obviously repeat myself sometimes. But there's something that's been on my mine for several weeks and the last few months, I should say, and it's caused me to make an evaluation of what's going on in our world. I'm not really interested in anything going on in our world but the effect of the gospel. That's my greatest interest. I'm not interested in the politicians. They're never going to change. There's always another politician that can do bad things in the line, and so that's going to keep on until Jesus comes, I guess. I'm not interested too much in the world's problems. Uh, I figure the world has the problems because the true gospel hasn't been preached. So that simplifies it for me. I'm not interested in the devil. If he gets between you and God, he's bigger than God. And so I don't give him a lot of publicity or even talk about him a lot. Uh, because I already know who's bigger than he is. And it just so happens that bigger one is in me. And so there's just no sense dwelling on the devil a whole lot. I don't talk a whole lot about your needs being met, though that is important. I don't talk about you getting a miracle so much or you come into this meeting be healed. We'll pray for the sick during this uh, weekend because I believe in it. But that's not the bigger thing. My attitude toward that has always been if you have any need, it can only be answered by seeing more Christ. If I get you to see more Christ, that cures whatever it is that brought the need. And that's more important to me than getting you healed. I'd like to help you find out what it is that brings your sickness and get that under control. So there are a lot of things I'm not going to talk about because there's one thing that burns in me right now, and that's what's happened to God's people in the world who have not had the true gospel preached to them. I've never lived in a day when I felt like Christianity was in any worse condition. I think if the churches of Revelation are Judaistic churches, and that's the way it's going to be, particularly in the tribulation period, then we are headed toward that. Even in religion today, we see the downfall, the the I call it the dumbing down of believers. I've never known a time that believers were being dumbed down more than they are today. It isn't them learning more of the Lord that's important. It seems to be the more they get from God is important. It isn't so much of them knowing who they are in Christ as knowing somebody bigger famous in Christ that they can go see or participate with. We've come to a time where we become so dumbed down that if anybody brings just the truth of the gospel, it isn't exciting to people. It doesn't stir them anymore. It's not uh, an answer to their need. And yet, there is no answer to man's need outside of what I call 
the true gospel, the gospel of uncircumcision, the gospel of Jesus Christ as it was given to the Apostle Paul. It is these things that I feel burn in my heart and I want to talk to you about during this weekend. What's really happened to us that has made the Christians so dumbed down in this generation is that everything has become outer. We live in a world where the outer things are so powerful that a person, a real person within themselves is lost in it. Television, radio, the news media, movies, all of these outer things have bedimmed the inner man of man so that he doesn't progress so much anymore. He doesn't grow in understanding, doesn't grow in knowledge. And with Christian people, everything has become outer. We had rather see God do something great in our estimation than to know God. We've come to a place to where we want to know all about God, but we don't want to know God because knowing God shuts us in where we have to deal with ourselves. We have to deal with inner things. I think the world has become dumbed down because these outer things have become our main exposure to life. And all our relationship with God has become outer. I look at these places where Romanism is strong. And certainly I'm not uh, discrediting Romanism, but this is a good picture of what's happened to us. I can go in Mexico, which is south of us in the States, and it's a little village. It's poor. Nobody has hardly anything. They live from hand to mouth. But in the city square is a big temple. I mean, it is huge. And it is gorgeous. If there's nothing else there in the land, that temple is beautiful and big in the center of that square. And people will go in that temple and they'll sit down and just sit. They say meditate and pray, but they'll just sit and look around at the pictures on the wall, at the statues, at the candles, at the flourishing inside beauty. It's all outer. And that's a picture of what's happened to us in religion. Everything has turned outer so that the effect of our lives is determined by these outer things. If we're not careful, our whole relationship with God becomes an outer thing, and we lose whatever search there is within us to know God. In the Christ life message, the first thing that stimulated me from the Scriptures was the over 200 times that the Scripture said the, the term in Christ. 146 of those times was spoken by the Apostle Paul alone. And when he spoke it, he was not using it simply as a prepositional phrase, but he was using the term that the believer was actually in Christ. He said this better in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 when he said, For by one Spirit have we all been baptized into one body. That body is Christ. And so him using the term in Christ spoke of something the believer was in. Uh, he said on Mars Hill that this Christ who he speaks about is in whom we live and move and have our very being. So he introduced to the world something that we know very little about. He took away all the glories that had been in Judaism. He took away all of the sanctuaries, even the tabernacle in the wilderness, all the liturgy of Judaism all of the holy days of Judaism, and he said they're nailed to the cross. He was headed toward a relationship with God where a man was in God. In God. 
not outside of God, but in God, in Christ. It was a different kind of relationship. It was a whole new world that he opened up to people. We live in a day when the outer things have become great to us. We like to go to a great meeting. They had a meeting in the States not long ago, and 30,000 people were in this meeting, and everybody said, oh, God was really there. Uh, he was wherever they went, but they didn't know that. But when they saw 30,000 people, they said, oh, God is really big now. <coughs> you see, that's what's happened to us. Believers tell me, say, well, you ought to come to our church. We have 5,000 people that gather on Sunday morning, and you'll really feel God. What does that do to the God that's in them, to the Christ that's in them? Do I have to go somewhere? Do I have to do something for him to be God? This is what's happening to our reasoning and our understanding. God is not God except outer. If I can see him, if I can feel him, if I can touch him, if my senses recognize him, then he's real. This is what I mean by the dumbing down of the Christian. And yet every Christian, regardless from Romanism to Pentecostalism and everything in between, if they're born again, every last one of them have Christ in them. So what do we do with this knowledge and this understanding? How do we handle the fact if the only way we're stimulated is to see a lame man walk or to see a big crowd or to see somebody famous except Jesus as their Savior? What does that do to this Christ who lives and moves and has his being in us? Does he have conscience? Does he have feeling? Is he real? Does he have a mind? Does he have a heart? Can he be hurt? Can he be worked against? Can he be ignored? If the Holy Spirit can be hurt, what about this Jesus that lives in us? What about him? That's what I want to talk to you about during this weekend. Our faith in the modern church today is no longer based on a knowing. It's based on results. Most every preacher you hear these days that preaches faith will not tell you that you have come to know God by that faith. He'll tell you if you really get faith, you'll get a miracle. Your business will straighten out. You'll get money. You'll get healed. You'll get this. You'll get that. Faith has become an issue of results, not an issue of knowing God. Well, I like to get things from God, too. In fact, I couldn't exist if God didn't give me things. But I learned a good while ago that I could exchange that understanding for knowing God and not come behind in any gift from God. That the problem was not in the way I did things, but in who I knew. Did I know by faith that Christ lived in me? Had I accepted him by faith that he lived in me? Well, we've come to a place today that people know all about God, but nobody knows it. Why do I make an outlandish statement like that? Because you listen to most people talk and they'll say, yes, I know God, here's what he did. That's an outer thing. That doesn't mean they know God at all. You say, well, they had great faith and God honored their faith. That doesn't mean much either. Because I prayed for thousands of people in my lifetime. I believe in divine healing and used to have nothing but divine healing campaigns. But I found very few people interested in going on with God who wanted a miracle. 
And miracles don't really feed us. You ever stop to think about it? Did you ever get a miracle from God? Sure you have. But you know what a miracle did for you? It didn't make you know God more. It just made you know that God can do this, and what I really want now is a bigger one. All miracles I've ever done in my lifetime to people is make them want another one, which is okay. God works miracles. I believe in it. Faith. If faith is not coming to know God, just knowing about God by something he did, then you have missed the essence of what is the gospel. What is the gospel? I want to tell you something about faith. I probably said this before, but you need to hear it in the sequence I'm coming to you now by. Faith is the hardest work a Christian ever does. To get faith is the hardest work you'll ever do. Because faith is a messed up thing in your understanding. It was in mine for many years. I would talk to people about the faith that Abraham had. He's the father of faith. So I'd have all of these stories out of Abraham, what he did. Uh, how a hundred-year-old man uh, could have a, enough bona fide semen to put in a 90-year-old woman and get an Isaac. Boy, he must have had a lot of faith. Or I could talk about Jesus of Nazareth. And this is what confused it. Jesus said, if you have faith only as a grain of mustard seed, you can transplant trees and move mountains. Well, then how much faith did it take for somebody to get what they wanted? There's very few of us that are asking for mountains to be removed. We just want little things. I'd like to be whole in my body. I'd like for my business to go along. I'd like the Lord to give me some money. If he'd give me some seed money, then I could get ahead. We'd like for the Lord to answer our prayer. But how much faith does it take to get that? Well, you work hard for it. You listen to the average preacher today, he'll say, if you'll take all our faith promises, I've got a new Bible, it's got them all in purple. Order my new Bible, and you can see all of the faith promises. If you'll get these down, you'll get your miracle. Or the next one will come along and say, if you'll write me for my prayer cloth, you'll get your miracle because it's loaded with my faith. Well, that's easy. That's much easier to do. You say, well, doesn't God use these things? Sure he has. used them lots of times. But that doesn't mean you know God. You're just learning about him. Big difference there. So you work hard to get faith. And let me tell you what you get from faith. If you don't get what you asked for when you prayed, you'll never know whether you got any faith or not. You'll never know. Well, you say, I got a little bit of faith. I didn't get what I wanted, but I got a little bit of things. I got a little bit of what I wanted. I got a little healing. I feel a lot better. That's all right. But you still don't know God. The scripture says, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's how it comes. What is that? That's a knowledge. That's a learning process. That's not really a getting process. That's a learning process. You've learned something about God. Faith is a substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen. What is it then? It's a knowledge. Hope is fixed in knowledge. So, what is faith? Faith is a learning process. It's a knowing. It's not just a getting process because you're not going to always get what you want from God, but you're going to always get a God that loves you if you're wanting to know him. Well, that's different. That's not very explosive, you see. I can't get any amens with that sort of talk. But I'm not here 
to give you something to make you feel good, but something that you'll never forget so that when you leave here, you've got a knowing about God that's important. Knowing about him. Our faith must not be built on results, which is senses in operation and which is outer. Our faith must be based on knowing God. Not only this, all of these outer things are a part of what I call Judaism. Never in my 50 years of ministry has Judaism been so rampant as it is today. Judaism in Christianity is a malfunction because it doesn't belong to Christianity. Christianity should have nothing to do with Judaism. It's not only out of bounds, it's detrimental to our very faith. Then why is it that the Christian church holds on to so many Judaistic ideas? It's simple. They're outer. You can see them. You get a great feeling from them. If you don't know the true gospel that Jesus gave to the Apostle Paul, then the gospel you know is a gospel that starts with Abraham and goes all the way through the Old Testament for 1,700 years where God's entire dealings with people was outer. One of the covenants, four unfulfilled covenants, one of them is the covenant we call the New Covenant in the book of Jeremiah. I don't know why they called it a new covenant. It confuses people with a new covenant in the New Testament, but it's called the new covenant for Israel in the book of Jeremiah. And that covenant is where Israel's going to get a new heart. You ever read that? You ever hear preachers say we're going to all get new hearts? That's not true. Doesn't belong to you. Belongs to Israel. It's in, it's in what they call the new covenant. Four unfulfilled covenants for Israel today, and one of them is the new covenant. Well, it doesn't belong to us. But why do we like that? Oh, if this whole church could just pray through and get a good heart for God. What would that be? That'd be an outer thing. We love it. We love the outer things. We love to preach on them and teach on them. Whether they belong to us or not, God's so merciful that if you believe a dog bears cats, God just might go along with you. He loves you so much. But it wouldn't be true. And I don't think he'd make that a usual way of doing things. But that's what we've come to. We have become very Judaistic in our thinking. We want God to put his mantle on us like Elijah, Elijah did Elisha. Wow, that's a good outer thing. If the Lord had just cloaked me with this sort of anointing. I have preacher friends who preach on the tabernacle in the wilderness. You ever hear anybody preach on the tabernacle in the wilderness? I used to do it. If you'd have been where I was, you'd have known me. Well, what's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that. It's a beautiful story. You see Jesus in every little aspect of it, but it's all outer. Not any of it has anything to do with this Jesus into whom we have been baptized. But we love it. That's a part of Christianity. That's a part of our makeup. And if I came along and tried to take it away from you, you'd holler heretic and run out of here. You may do it anyhow. But I've got to tell you the truth. We have become so dumbed down, we are bound by these outer things, even from the scriptures. And the end result is what God really says to us in the scriptures and what really belongs to we who are born again goes begging. We don't know anything about it. We're so obsessed with the outer things. Our faith has become that. 
we have chosen the Judaistic message over what the Apostle Paul said, the great mystery, which is Christ in you, our hope of glory. That's a decision we've all made in our lifetime. It's a hard, cruel thing to talk about it because it's so precious to us. But if you're to go on in God and face these ungodly days that are ahead, I'll tell you the overcomer will be the one who has the overcomer living in him, not the one who becomes an overcomer by his own works. So this means that we have to listen to somebody who has given us the truth about how we are to live and what we are to do. Who is it that can do that for us? Well, there is only one man I know of in the Bible who knew Jesus Christ. Uh, I got your attention. Most every other person in the scripture knew about him. And you know the difference between those two things? Do you know the difference? Years ago, we had a president named Lyndon Johnson. He was a Texan. He was from Texas. I was from Texas. I'd go to far outposts like New England, and they'd say, oh, you're from Texas. You must know the president. Well, Texas is, I don't know, it's a third the size of South, South Africa, I understand. It's a big place, you know. And they'd think I ought to know him like we were neighbors or, or something. New England, you can travel through six states in New England and not go 100 miles. So... They figured Texas is like that. They knew nothing about the vast wilderness. And so they'd say, well, you must know Lyndon Johnson. And I'd think for a moment, well, he's from Texas. I've known him for years before he became president. He was a politician. I know a lot, of, I know a lot about him, and I've even seen him a couple of times. I saw him in a parade once. I saw him at a ball game once. Uh, uh, and I'd think, well, do I know Lyndon Johnson? Finally, I'd look and say, no, I don't know Lyndon Johnson. And I realized I knew so much about him that I was tempted to say I knew him. I could read the magazine, see what he did every day as president, where he went, who he talked to. It's all written. I could know everything about him. But I never knew that man. I never knew him. Most people are like this with Jesus Christ. They know a lot about him. And you can know so much about Jesus Christ that you feel you know him. You see, in the Old Testament, they knew about him. It was such a cardinal issue that Jesus said to him one day that you could have known all about me. You'd have read the scriptures. They testify of me. They could have known all about him. But there was a soul in the Old Testament that could have known him. Even though he was God's son, even though he existed at the right hand of the Father, there wasn't a soul in the Old Testament that could have known him. So there's not a soul in the Old Testament that can tell you about the Jesus that lives in you. There wasn't a soul that knew him in the four Gospels. If anyone came close to it, it was John. But John lived 35 years beyond the Apostle Paul, so he had a lot greater access to knowledge and understanding than anybody else in the Scriptures. But there wasn't anybody in the Synoptic Gospels that knew anything about who Jesus was. One time Jesus said to them, this being a big issue, he said, whom do you say that I am? And they said, well, you're two or three different people. 
Ah, but he pinpointed Peter. And he said, Whom do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you know what Jesus said to him? He didn't say, You knew all about me. You learned me from the Old Testament. He said, No, sir, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. So see, you can know all about somebody and not know them. Then how do we come to know Jesus? By Him being in us. He's in us. He lives in us. This is His life. You're looking at the Christ life when you look at me. The Christ life in the version of Litzman. I'm looking at the Christ life in the version of Narjay here. That's where He lives. That's where He is. That's how we come to know Him. By Him living in us. I know the real Jesus by how he comes out of me. That's why I say there wasn't anybody in this book that knew Jesus but Paul. The rest of them knew a lot about him, but they didn't really know him. Peter, James, and John certainly didn't because none of their epistles tell us that until John wrote his final epistle long after Paul's death. So I say these things to get your attention, whether you like them or not. Because something has to happen to us if we are to become bona fide Christians. Now, don't mistake what I say. There will be multitudes of people that never know a thing I say. Most of them will never know anything Paul said. And he's the one who knew Jesus in the Scriptures. But they're going to go to heaven because they're born again. Because they're saved. They're going to make heaven. I'm not here to tell you who's going to make it and who isn't going to make it. I'm here to talk to people who want to go on with God. And my first real point I'd like to make with you is to get you thinking about the outer things in preference to the Christ who lives in you. Most people have ignored the one man in the Scriptures that knew Jesus in a very personal way. That was the Apostle Paul. Let's contrast that with the 12 disciples who followed Jesus. They did something Paul never did. They slept with Christ. They ate with Christ. They worked with Christ. They were taught by Christ. They were close associates of Christ. But they never knew him like Paul did. Paul never ate with Christ. He never walked with Christ in the flesh. He never lived with Christ. But he knew Christ. Now that's the big decision that I think all Christians make at one time or another in their life. Because I can't believe that the Holy Spirit, who is with every born-again believer also, would leave them in ignorance. That at some time and some place, the Holy Spirit would deal with a human being who had accepted Christ as their Savior and say, now here's something about Jesus you don't know that's very important. If he didn't say that, surely they would have read something in the Scriptures. Maybe one of these 146 times Paul says, we're in Christ and Christ is in us, and it had gotten their attention. It had gripped them. So that they could say, well, there is something about Jesus. I don't know much about it. Surely that could have happened. Well, if that never happened to them, if they never knew what Paul said, if the Holy Spirit never revealed Christ in them, if they never understood the mystery, they'll still go to heaven if they're saved because that's what grace is. 
That's what the grace of God is. People all over the world sit in meetings where I am and hear me talk. And I guess a lot of them never get what it is I'm saying. That has nothing to do with them going to heaven or them loving God or being Christian. What it has to do with is the greater fact that he that is within them has never gotten an audience from them. He lives and moves and has his being in them. And he's never gotten their attention. When God looks at that believer, he's going to save them because Christ is in them. God won't depend on a shred of their Christian activity to save them. He won't depend on a moment they lived in the Scriptures and read the Bible. He won't depend on an hour that they ever sat in a church house. The Scripture is clear. He'll see Christ in them, and Christ is their salvation. Now, why would you want to go a lifetime and never know that? Why would you want to live with this person in you and spend the rest of your life searching for him in a greater way? That's where the outer things come in. Jesus spoke of that. He said the day will come when they'll say, Lo, I'm over here. Lo, I'm over there. I'm over here. Come over here and see me. He exploded that. Because to that very believer, he had his resting place. He had his life. He lived in them. What makes it important then to listen to what the Apostle Paul had to say? Maybe you don't know Paul. I run into people all the time who say, you think it's really important to study Paul's epistles? I'm astounded. It used to be and not anymore because we're so dumbed down now that that's a common statement. I say, friend, if you want to know God as a believer, a born-again believer, that's the only place you got information. It is to be found nowhere else. Not even Jesus of Nazareth gave us that information. That bothers him. Because, you see, we've come to where God is only in the outer things. If there's a preacher that can wave his hand and a thousand people fall out on the floor, boy, that's God. If there's somebody that walks up to us and says, hey, I got a word from the Lord, you better do this, you better do that, they say, that's God. I'm not saying it isn't, but I'm not saying that's knowing God. That's not really coming to the knowing that is available to those who hunger and thirst after his righteousness. So you're going to have to come to the Apostle Paul sooner or later. You say, well, do you lift Paul up more than anybody else? Not more than Jesus. Not more than Jesus of Nazareth. Who could take his place? But would it offend you if I told you that God wouldn't let Jesus talk about something that he raised up Paul to talk about? You see, if I'm right in that statement, then you're going to have to consider it in your walk with God that not even Jesus knew the things that Paul knew to tell people when Jesus probably knew everything. But it was not God's will that he said. Three times Jesus said to the disciples, I've got things to talk to you about, but you're not ready. Another place he said you couldn't bear it. Another place he said the time has not yet come. 
about Paul? He's the most wicked man that God ever had in his program where Jesus was concerned. Now, God had a lot of wicked men in the Old Testament. But that was not primarily a concern with Jesus. The Apostle Paul was the most wicked man that ever was concerned with Jesus. Think of that now. Because he was a young rabbi. We believe he wanted to be on the 70-member Sanhedrin. He was too young, didn't have enough experience to be voted on to that honorable council. So he came up with this idea that if I was to attack the leading opponents of Judaism in this thing called the way, what we now call Christians, if I could attack them and bring them bound, they're all violators of the Jewish law, and I could bring them bound before the magistrates, and some of them would be killed, and they were, and their meeting places were destroyed, all by this mean man Paul. He tried to kill God's infant church before it ever got a foothold. He killed believers. He's a mean man. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that at the same time, the biggest thing outside of the death of Jesus Christ that God was to ever do to humanity was yet to take place. Biggest thing. For when God drew up his plan, it had at least three points to it according to the scriptures. His plan was drawn up before the world ever started. And the first part of that plan was in Ephesians 1 and 4 where he said, according as he has chosen us to be in Christ before the foundation of the world. Point number one. Point number two was the Lamb was to be slain. First Peter 1 and 20. The Lamb was to be slain before the foundation of the world. Third point was Hebrews 4 and 3 we were to enter into his rest before the foundation. Now that's the plan. That's before sin. That's before the Garden of Eden. That's before Adam. That's before the devil was turned loose. That's God's original plan. His original plan was that men would be in Christ. But they could only be in Christ through the death of Jesus Christ. So those were the two cardinal points of God's plan before time ever started. All the rest of it is secondary to what God's original plan was. Human beings incomplete without Christ in them. And the only way they could get Christ in them was through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. All planned before anything in the world was created. Well now, he had the death. The lamb had died. The chosen people had rejected their Messiah, didn't want the Lamb. But God's plan had to move on. Think of that. For 1,700 years, God had wrestled with this erring people called Israel. And now his final great feat had taken place. The Lamb had died. They didn't need to offer any more lambs for Passover. It was over and past. But they rejected him. And God said the plan must go on. 
So the next unfulfilled part of God's plan was that human beings would have another person in them and that would be the way they'd serve God in a way that Israel never did because Israel never had Christ in them. So now God needed to release this second great aspect of his plan. When he sent his son to this earth to be the lamb, he fixed him a body that was without sin. Twice the scripture says, prophetically thou hast prepared for me a body. It was a prepared body, prepared through the ages by perfect bloodline that ended up with little Mary of Nazareth. And Mary manufactured the body that God's son would live in. That part was done. He was a perfect man, perfect Christ. He fulfilled the first important aspect of God's plan, the lamb that was slain in God's mind before the foundation of the world. But now the second part had to take place. Because until that moment, that very important part of God's plan that had left humanity incomplete must be finished. It was not just a lamb to die that was God's plan. The final aspect of his plan was that in resurrection, the lamb must live in the creature. That part was not done. So he's ready to do it. Does he prepare another body? Nope. Does he choose another perfect bloodline? Nope. Maybe he'll choose at least a good fellow. Nope. At least one that's not a murderer, a liar, a thief, meanest man on earth. Why in the world to complete this second part of God's plan would he choose the meanest man on earth? It's because this mean man was not only to be the first to know that Christ lived in the human being, but he was to deliver a message called grace. A lamb that was perfect couldn't do that, for he had never experienced that grace. But the meanest man on earth will experience that grace and be its messenger. And all the rest of the law preachers would never like him. In his day, Peter didn't like it. James didn't like it. John tolerated it. But none of them in the Judaistic foe liked this mean man. The church at Jerusalem turned him down. He spent a period one time of 14 years before he'd even appear before the church at Jerusalem. It was all law. Or how could the meanest man on earth that destroyed our brethren ever get anything from God? That was God's choice. To this date, he's not liked in Christianity like he ought to be. I buy every popular book that I think has any merit to it. And Paul's never given the credit. He's not our Savior. He's not comparable to Jesus, the Messiah. He's not a king. But he's the first human being that ever fulfilled God's plan with knowledge. He's the first one to ever know that Christ lives 
in me. Well, we're going to have to stop here for today, but didn't I tell you this is going to be a great series? It's part number one of Warren Litzman's series on Renewing the Mind, and we all hope you really enjoyed it today. Let me invite you to go to our website. It's christ-life.org christ-life.org. There you can read all about us. There you can read about the Christ life, which we all love and celebrate. And be sure and visit our bookstore while you're there, too, and look for some of Warren's great material that he left behind. Well, we'd like to thank Robbie Litzman. She allows us to go into the archives each week to bring you these wonderful lessons and these podcasts. Also, Valerie Hill does our Twitter account, Tammy Laycock does the weekly podcast notes, and the program is produced weekly by Teresa Ferraro from the Christ Life Fellowship. Until next time, I'm Brad Wilson, loving the Christ Life.